0: Good morning. You know what I love more than Jesus? Chick-fil-A. And I've been like, I was driving over this morning like, what, what fine dining establishment am I going to experience in Spokane today? And just now I realized I get to have communion three times this morning. So like, I don't even have to eat lunch. <laughs> um, my name's Chris. I, like James said, I pastor a church in Coeur called Anthem. Uh, I actually pastor our downtown Anthem uh, in Coeur d'Alene. We have one in Hayden one downtown. And uh, Richie and I go way back. So uh, we went to Bible college together. I can remember back in about the year 2000, prior to him and I being even being married, us and our wives did a double date in Seattle while we were going to Bible college. And we sat over a cup of coffee and talked about the day that one of us or both of us would plant churches. And um, I was running a skateboard ministry for about 15 years prior to jumping in to plant a church. And Richie was working in youth ministry. And then all these years later, we sort of end up in similar necks of the woods, planting churches together. And I just have to tell you that I absolutely love your pastor. He's a dear friend of mine. And we've laughed together, we've cried together. uh, We've been frustrated together and worked through COVID together. And um, he's just been a blessing. And him and his wife are just dear friends of ours. And if you haven't heard the statistics as of late, they say about 46% of pastors say they want to quit right now as a result of the last few years. And so to have a friend like Richie has just been amazing through the last few years, and we just dearly appreciate uh, each other's friendship. So anyhow, uh, I'm going to jump into James chapter 2 this morning. Are you guys with me? Okay. James said this is the best service, so I, I, I'm hoping that that's the case. We got any closet charismatics in the house you are going to come out this morning? Um, oh, there we go. Shouting me down, that's what I like to hear. All right, so we're going to be in James chapter 2. To give you a little backstory about me, uh, 43 years old, uh, a little over a decade ago, I got this harebrained idea to do an Ironman race, and so 2012, I started training for an Ironman, did an Ironman in 2012, did another Ironman in 2014, halfway through, uh, any other triathletes in, in the house that can at least share a little bit of the pain with me? You're all smart people. So um, 2014, did another one. Halfway through the race, I punctured my lung. Didn't know it. Was in extreme pain the whole race uh, from that point on. Found out two weeks after the race because I was in so much pain that there was a hole in, hole in my lung, and I didn't know what was going on. And, um, and so I hung up my bike and shoes and everything for about eight years, and just this year, I decided to make a comeback at 43. I'm like, got this, you know? Let's, let's do this. this 40, my 40s are going to be the decade. you know. And so uh, I, I started training for a half Ironman that I did a few weeks ago in, in Coeur d'Alene. Well, one of the things that I love most about uh, Ironman races is the training. I mean, for a full Ironman, you're committing to about nine months of your life training. Uh, the half was about six months that I spent training for it. But what I love most about the training are the people that you get to train with. And so. The two Ironman races that I did in the past, I had really good friends that signed up with me, and we spent a lot of time together, like, praying while we're riding on, like, for six hours on a bike, you know, and, and talking to each other, and like, it was just a really, the spiritual experience, physically challenging experience, emotionally challenging experience, like, every facet of it was so good. But the training portion with people is just so amazing, and so valuable. So this last year, uh, last summer, 10 of us from our church over in Coeur decided we we're all going to sign up for the Half Ironman and do it together. Guess how many of us actually did the race? Three. So 70% ducked out. But the two other guys that did the race with me had never done a triathlon before in their life, and they were jumping right in to do this Half Ironman. They're each about a decade younger than me. And so we trained together pretty intensely over the last four months leading up to that race. And what was really cool for me was Uh, We we had gone out on a swim one day down at the lake in Coeur d'Alene and uh, We went out on the lake and I'm not like bragging about myself I'm a faster swimmer because I have experience and I've had coaches and I've learned some technique things And So these guys are brand new to the scene trying to figure it out We get out in the water and I just kind of like took off and come back And I'm waiting for like 20 minutes on the beach for them to come back and they get out They're like what the heck, you know? Like, how in the world are you so fast? You're 10 years older than us, you know? I'm the old man. And and, uh, and I said, well, there's so much about of this technique. Like, there's so much about of that's form. And so he's like, teach me, teach me. And so we stood on the beach and gave him instruction. And he would take what I told him to do, and he'd go out in the water, this buddy of mine. And then he'd try it, and he'd come back in. Okay, change this, try this, and morph. And then he'd go back out, and he'd try it come back in and he's like, I seriously feel like I'm getting faster. He's like, I, I can feel myself gliding. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're learning how to have form. You're learning how to actually swim for endurance races. And he actually got to see some of the fruit of what it was that he was putting to practice. Um, ironically enough, he beat me by three minutes on race day. Um, and I was super proud of him. Like the guy actually took the stuff that he was being taught and he began to put it into practice. And that's one of the things that, like, when you look at this book of James, um, you know, I, I see these parallels in our lives with our relationship with Jesus so often. And sometimes, most of the time, for me, it happens when I'm training and whatnot. But um, because none of us in this room have arrived, right? Any, is anybody there this morning? You got there? Like, we should hang out afterwards, you know? You're either a liar or you got someone figured out that I don't. Um, but none of us have arrived, right? No matter how long we've been following Jesus, we're still learning, and we're growing, and we're maturing in our walk with him. And when you look at the book of James, you see this consistent challenge throughout the book of James to actually do something with your faith. To not be hearers of the word, but to be what? Doers, doers of the word, right? To live out the practical aspects of your faith. Not be hearers, but to be doers. And much like my friend who took what it was he was instructed to do, put it to practice, much like him, our Christian lives should be progressing as we mature in our relationship with Jesus and we put the things in practice that our rabbi, King Jesus, tells us to do. We should actually be a church that doesn't just listen, doesn't just take in all the information, but we actually take it in, we process it, and then we begin to put it into practice in our lives. And the problem is, is that much like Uh, what James was dealing with in the first century church in Jerusalem, is that people knew the teaching. Some of them literally saw Jesus in person, but they didn't always walk them out. And so James knew that as trials and temptations increased in the believer's life, there was no way for the church of Jesus to actually navigate these without responding to the teachings of Jesus, without doing something with what he taught them. And so They knew the techniques, but they didn't practice them. And so James spends his time encouraging them to live consistently with what they've learned. To actually practice what it is they've been taught. That that wisdom from the Lord actually results in a life that bears fruit, doesn't it? We know that. Wisdom from the Lord results in a life that bears fruit. So that's where James is at. We know James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem at this time. He's writing this letter to other Christians, and at the end of James 1, um, he, he's having this whole discussion about being doers of the word, not just hearers, not just Christians who say that we're Christians, but actual doers of what the scriptures tell us to do in order to model our lives after Jesus. That's the goal. And so this next section that we're digging into is a continuation of that into chapter two, that James is starting to give us more and more practical ways in which we as Christians can be actually Living out a genuine faith for Jesus. Are you with me this morning? Okay. And so we come into chapter two. And um, if you go ahead and like look in your your Bibles there in chapter two, some of you will have different headlines, uh, titles for this section. Some might say the sin of partiality. Some of your translations might say favoritism forbidden. Some of them might say a warning against prejudice. Um, But he says this in James chapter two, verse one. Say a word when you're there. Yeah, all right, there we go. My brothers, he says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in Jesus Christ. Stop there for one second. I'm a very like uh, graphic person. So in my head, I see pictures, right? When I read this passage and I think of holding the faith in Jesus and not showing partiality, The image that I get is this idea that you cannot hold the faith in Jesus and hold partiality at once. You can't do it. You're either going to be somebody who practices partiality or somebody who holds to the faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you hold to the faith in Jesus Christ, what results from your life? Your life bears fruit. If you know that Jesus is not partial towards us, and you hold to the faith in Jesus Christ, then you're not what? Partial towards others. And so that's what James is saying. You, you, you can't show partiality as you hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus. So it hit pause here for one second. A couple months ago when Richie called and asked if I would share this morning, um, I said, yeah, sure, you know, send me the passage that you want me to teach out of. And he sends me this, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, this is kind of an odd dang it moment. Um, I'm like, you couldn't give me any other passages, like faith without works or taming the tongue. Like, there's some really good stuff in James. You gave me the sin of partiality. And so this morning is just a downer. I'm really sorry you guys have to be here this morning. We're just going to take it down or not, you know. And, but I don't know about you, but when, when I see this section and I think of partiality, I sort of think of a handful of things to myself that maybe you're sitting here thinking this morning. One being, okay, I, I know partiality and favoritism is wrong. Like, I get that. Some of you are just like, I understand that. I, I get that it's wrong. Some of you are thinking, like, yes, I, I get how partiality could be a sin and, and how maybe favoring someone a little bit over another, like a best friend um, over another friend or something like that, is wrong. Like, I could understand how that might be a sin. Or maybe some of you are thinking, well, I don't really do this that much. Like, I don't mean I. I don't really show favoritism in my life. I don't struggle in this area. This isn't a big deal to me. I. I don't have a favorite kid or anything, right? Parents, please say yes. You know, like leaving me hanging here this morning. Are you guys here? Are you here? Yeah. Okay. So as I studied this text over the last few weeks, I began to learn why James wrote this to to understand that this is more than just calling someone your best friend over another friend. As the Holy Spirit began to really convict me and work in my heart over the last few weeks, honestly, my heart began to break over this passage because my heart broke for the church, for Jesus' church. My heart broke for our communities. My heart broke for the many people that I come into contact with on a regular basis. My heart broke for those of you in this room this morning. And my heart broke as I reflected on the seriousness of the sin of partiality that James is talking about. And how, as I said before, I didn't even think it was that big of a deal in my own life. I can read this passage and be like, I don't do that. I, you know, I'm very equal. I'm very fair. God, I don't struggle with this in my life. And I realize just how blind I actually am to this in my own life. And hear me this morning, I think a lot of us in this room are blind to the sin in our own lives as well. So what is partiality, as James is talking about here in this passage? This word partiality, it literally means to receive someone according to their faith, is what it means. And so as we'll see in this example that James is about to give us, it's pretty much judging someone based on their external appearance, is what James is referencing, which we never do, right, church? We don't do that, right? So to start off this this chapter again, he says, my brothers. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so here's the deal, because the, the sin of partiality is like literally getting its own section pretty high up. And, you know, in the second chapter of the book of James, Like if it's getting the place that it is and James is giving it the time that he is, There must have been something going on in the church of Jerusalem that caused James to think this is important and this is something that we need to deal with, right? And he says, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. None. Like not even a little from time to time. He says, show none. And so what we need to do is like look at the context of what James is talking about. What's he really talking about? Why is James talking about this? What's Going on, that he felt the prompting, the need to write this down. And, and why is it important to you and I today? And so keep reading with me, because James is going to give us an example of what, this, what was going on. Verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Anybody else feel like, ugh? (laughs) So he gives us a little bit deeper glimpse into this, right, with regards to what he's talking about when he says there should be no partiality amongst you. To to set the, the scene a little bit for you, this example that James is talking about is taking a place in the assembly. Meaning it's most likely talking about a gathering of Christians. Um, more likely, he's even talking about like the church there in Jerusalem, like in the gathering of the, the followers of Jesus in the church. And so you, you get a little more context and understanding when he says, refers to this assembly, that, that, that this is going on in James's church. And so that's why it's important to him to bring this up because he has a disdain against what he's seeing in the church. And so James says, imagine a church gathering. Imagine this church gathering, and he goes on to describe these two people that walk into this church gathering. And let's just say these two people are completely new, like they're guests, nobody knew them. They've never been there before. And so one of the guests is just totally blinged out from head to toe, right? He's got gold rings on, shiny clothes. He seems to be doing pretty well for himself. You can just tell that the dude has money, um, by, by what it is he's wearing and his presence, like his appearance, he's got it all together, he looks good, and he's getting all kinds of attention from the other people in the church. And then there's this other guy that comes in as well. And let's just say this guy's pretty much the opposite of the, the last guy. The, this guy comes in looking rough. James actually says that he was a poor man in shabby, sometimes translated filthy clothes. And he comes in and he probably smells. He probably looks like he hasn't showered in a while. Maybe his his clothes are torn and his hair and his beard are a bit mangy. And this guy's also attracting attention, but he's attracting a different kind of attention than the guy who's wealthy, right? The attention is different. He's getting attention, all right, but he probably is getting attention because of the way he looks and the way he smells, the people that are noticing him, people are telling him to get out of the way. And so James gives this example of these two completely different people walking into the gathering of the believers, completely different in how they look, how they dress, how they carry themselves, and most likely, completely different backgrounds and lives. And then James lets us in on this response from the people at the gathering where these two show up. Verse 3, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or you sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So you get the the well-dressed, like gold-ringed, fancy, rich guy walking around. James says his church sees him. They they connect with him. They chat with him. They, They offer him the best seat in the house, up front and center, so everybody can see this man. But then the other guy who's poor and he's looking pretty shabby and looking pretty bad, they say, you can actually stand over there. You can actually stand in the back corner up against the wall. Or better yet, why don't you just sit down at our feet? You don't deserve a chair. Like, your options are standing in the back or sit at our feet. And James is saying that this assembly, this church, where these two guys walk into, that they com- they completely treated these two men differently according to their socioeconomic position. So here's the thing, there's always a reason for these examples that we get in scripture. It's for us to look at, for us to kind of analyze ourselves, to allow the word to actually change us, transform us, challenge us, convict us, and for us to look at and try to figure out where are the similarities and the parallels in our lives. So I want to do that this morning. I know some of you, what you're thinking, and it's what I was thinking as I was reading through this passage and studying for today. Not at my church. That doesn't happen. My church isn't like that. <laughs> right? Like, that doesn't that doesn't happen in my church. I mean, come on, like, that's so extreme. My church is really good at welcoming people. We're really good at not playing favorites and, and having partiality. Like, I don't see that happening here. Maybe that happens at a lot of other churches, but not here. Anybody else think that about your own church? It's easy to think that. that that's my go-to about my own church that I pastored. Doesn't happen here. Maybe it happens at Richie's church, but not mine. You know what I mean? No. And so I'd say, like, you know, I, I kind of agree. Like, I would hope that, that my church has a higher standard in that sense. It's hard to imagine it happening there. But what really hits my heart, like, is the the, the truth that it probably is happening there. That That people in every church get overlooked. And you might not mean to, but people are actually being overlooked. It might not happen as often as it does in some other venues and some other places, but it happens. And we're guilty of showing favoritism in so many different ways. And what what, what James is saying is it's sin. Favoritism is sin, is what he's saying. So we, we might not know we're doing it, but we do it. It's literally in our sinful nature to judge others. To look at them by their appearance and begin to put them in categories. I was reading an article this past week about Gandhi. When Gandhi was a student in college, did you know that Gandhi went to go check out a Christian church in Calcutta, uh, India, while he was in school? Because he said he saw the caste system that existed in the Hindu religion. And what he said was, what I heard was that Christianity wasn't like that. That they had wiped out the caste system and that they weren't partial to one another. And so Gandhi had this inkling to go to a Christian church and to experience it. And he walked in and he went to an all white Christian church in Calcutta, in India. And he was immediately rejected and actually told to leave. And when interviewed later on in life, he said, That experience for him, he said, What I realized was that I thought they didn't have a caste system to differentiate themselves, but it actually exists in the Christian church. I might as well stay Hindu. I'm like, dang. So that exists in our churches. And here's the truth. is Again, it's probably more front and center than we give credit to. I've spent the last 24 years of my life in full-time ministry. I've toured the world with skateboarders, been to churches in 12 different countries, every state in the United States. I've been everywhere. I've worked at three different churches myself. I've seen it happen in the church. And that's not to say like, the church sucks. It's just to say, I think we can do better. And, and, and as I travel with skateboarders, I got a front row seat because you get a bunch of kids who are like, I, the kids I traveled with that, that were these like professional and amateur skateboarders, 90% of them came from fatherless homes. Um, and all of them gave their lives to Jesus as skateboarders at skateboarding events that we did and then went on tour with our team. They didn't grow up in the church. And so when they'd walk into a church, And the first accusation made against them was based on how they looked or the Metallica shirt that they had on, that they're not quite as sanctified as the rest of us. (laughs) I I got to see it, that that it actually does exist, that we are actually guilty of this. I've observed it. But the bigger picture, church, the the example James is giving of his own church assembly and, and the partiality that's shown to people who look different is just an example of something much bigger because there's a bigger issue that James is trying to address. That we've got a problem, and the problem we have is sin, and sin is actually infecting our churches. It's infecting our daily lives, our, our Christian lives outside of the church. And if we actually want to live out genuine faith in Jesus Christ, we need to take this idea of the sin of partiality seriously and really examine where it creeps up in our lives. Be willing to see it and acknowledge it and deal with it. James goes on, verse 5, listen, my beloved brother, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So Here you have James sort of continuing on with this theme of showing partiality and favoritism to the rich over the poor. And his example was was basically favoritism in a socioeconomic status in the gathering of the church, rich versus poor. That was the problem that James was addressing. That was the problem in the first century church, and it's still a problem today. But James goes a little bit deeper with this idea of the poor and he then begins to remind the Christians that they're that that of what God's view of the poor actually is. He says, listen to this. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Amen? Now that's it's just amazing. And so James appeals to God's choosing of the poor. He wants to remind them of what God thinks of the poor, that the poor have been chosen to be rich in faith, that he's talking deeper than just what we think of the poor. He's talking about being poor in spirit, which makes you rich in faith. And that those that recognize their spiritual poverty and their need for God are the ones that inherit the kingdom of God. And you see all throughout scripture, like many, many times that God has favor on the poor in spirit, but he also has favor on the poor in general. He has a heart for those that don't have much. He has a heart for those who hurt. God has a heart for those in need. And James is talking about those inheriting the kingdom of God are those who are poor who choose to love God with everything they have. And what James is getting at here is making sure that we see the poor the way that God sees the poor. That we see them as they are before him. And it sort of feeds this bigger issue that is how we view people versus how God views people. That we have a problem, right? We have a sin problem. It's called showing favoritism, as James points out. And James is saying, we dishonor those that we show partiality against. And even though we might be sitting here thinking to ourselves, well, I don't think this is really a problem for me. I don't struggle with the one, this one. I, I think I... I treat everyone equally. I don't have those crazy thoughts in my head when I first see or meet somebody. The reality is, is that we actually do. We we judge others. Like our natural bent because of the sin within us as human beings is to immediately have these internalized judgments when we see people. And it manifests in our heart because we're simple people. But in James's context, he's talking about rich versus poor in this example. But I want to expand this a little bit this morning. Like In our context, it certainly can be rich versus poor, but it also can be everything else, right? Everything from showing favoritism to the rich over the poor, to judging someone on their looks, judging people based on their talents, what they can bring to the table, what they can't bring to the table, to discriminate people, to have prejudices based on sex and race and background. It happens everywhere outside of the church in our everyday lives, pretty much everywhere we go in our society. But the sad thing is, like James is addressing here, is it should break our hearts when it seeps into the church, shouldn't it? Because it's not God's heart. That's not his heart. That's not how God would want himself to be reflected through us to others. It's not his heart. And so the bigger issue that you'll see in the next few verses, like bigger than showing favoritism or saying that you have favorites or bigger than being partial towards someone or bigger than giving someone a good seat while giving somebody else a worse seat, he says this in in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do commit adultery, but if you don't commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Again, wah-wah, right? Like, if you've done one of those, you actually broke it all. Uh, And This is the amazing part of the gospel, to be honest with you, that you don't have a chance. You get that? Outside of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, you don't have a chance. You're held against the law. But Jesus' life, his broken body, his blood shed for you, the resurrection power of Jesus was granted to you by his grace because he knows you can't do it on your own. So it's a good thing when James says, if we're truly living out the royal law found all over Scripture, that this command by Jesus himself that we shall love your neighbor as yourself, if we're actually doing that, then we're actually doing pretty good. But if we're not, then we're actually showing partiality because we're not loving our neighbor. In fact, we're sinning. In fact, we're breaking God's law, this command to love your neighbor as yourself. And the truth is, if that's the case, then you're guilty. And so James goes on to remind us that if we're guilty of this law, we're guilty of them all. Again, wah-wah, right? Right? How many of you guys know that this is not a downer part of the story? This actually should get us more stoked than anything, right? That we're guilty of breaking the law set for us by God. Even when we think we're doing great for not breaking the law because we're not committing some sins, you're actually still breaking the law, right? And he goes on to say, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become transgressor of law. So this is how serious James wants us to take showing partiality, that you can't just pick and choose what sins you think are more simple than others. And we live our life like that, don't we? We're like, well, I've done this, but I haven't done what that dude did. You know what I mean? Like, that dude's in a really bad place. God, you know that uh, I haven't done what he's done. So by God's grace, you know, like I'm doing pretty good. And God's like, have you done one of them? Like Then you've done all of them. And the deeper issue is this, is that when we show favoritism, we're not just showing just how we see others. It's not about that. But it actually exposes what we actually think about other people. It exposes the value that we see in others. Like when we're showing favoritism towards the rich, for example, we're seeing them for what they can do for us. It becomes all about us. We see them as, holding a higher value to us than the poor because of what it is that they can provide for us. Just like if we show favoritism towards those only in our friend group because they're like us, we're holding them to this higher value than those who might be different than us. I have a 17-year-old son that's learning how to be an adult right now. Lots of conversations right now with him are like, but, you know, who are your friends that you're hanging out with? You know, like, well, you know, I hang out with these guys, but these guys want to hang out with me. I don't want to hang out with them because I just don't, you know, they're not my stuff. And and Heather and I will say things like, do you ever see us hanging out with all the people we just want to hang out with? No, we go hang out with the people that God wants us to hang out with because we're gonna show them the love and the grace of Jesus. We're gonna be a friend to those who don't have the friend. This isn't about getting all the people in your life that you want in your life and only keeping your small click because that's the only way you can survive. It's about looking around this world, around this room and saying, God, who is it that you've called me to? How do I become the reflection of Jesus to the world that you've placed me in? I'm certainly not going to be that if I'm only with a homogenous group of people that think like me, act like me, talk like me. I'm going to go to the broken. I'm going to go to the marginalized. I'm going to go to the the places where everybody else has told them to stand in the back of the room and sit at the floor. I'm going to go to those people and I'm going to say, you take the front seat. You have what I have. Some of you have probably seen this illustration before. But so often with, with, with favoritism, it actually ends up revealing what we value and how much we actually value others when we show favoritism. It, re- it reveals that our value of others is actually different than God's value of them, which actually just can't be. That cannot happen. And I I love this illustration that most of you have probably seen. But, you know, I have these two $1 bills. One is like super clean and crispy, right? And then one is like jacked up. It's like wrinkled and it's torn. and Like nobody wants that one. And it's so funny when you walk up to people and you say, I'm going to give you a dollar. I want you to take one. Which dollar do they take? clean one like if you're anything like me if I get one of these I'm like I don't know where that thing has been I'm rushing down to the bank and I'm like dude can you give me a crispy one you know what I mean like I'm not I'm not going to carry that thing around with me we want the clean crispy one but what do we actually know of Jesus that both of these things have the exact same value despite how wrinkled and crumpled up this one is it's still a dollar bill The value is not different, but my perceived value is, that doesn't go in my pocket. I just want the clean one. We do that with God's people so much. We pick and choose who he wants us to be with and who's more like me and who's easier to like, who believes all the same things I do. Instead of like, where are the crinkly ones that Jesus spent all of his life with? wrap up with this application. So how how do we as followers of Jesus, how many of you are followers of Jesus? At least 50% of you, that's a good call. But how do we as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, begin seeing everyone the way that God sees them? How do we do that? How do we make sure that no matter what someone looks like on the outside, that we're showing them the same amount of love, the same amount of grace, the same amount of kindness that God would show them. And the answer is this, James tells us, the answer is mercy, right? He says in verses 12 and 13, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But then he says what? This should be a big fat amen. Mercy triumphs over judgment, amen? And here's the truth, is that we're guilty of sin, that we're guilty of many sins, therefore we deserve God's judgment that's coming to us. But the good news is mercy. Like even though we've sinned indefinitely uh, in the way we treat others and we view others, we show favoritism. Even though we have grace and mercy that was poured out for us on the cross, like James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Whose mercy is it that James is talking about? It's God's mercy, right? His mercy, because we're guilty. Like we need his mercy poured out upon us for our sins by him dying on the cross for us. However, James is also talking about something else. He's actually also talking about our mercy towards others. So if we wanna be a people who take our faith seriously, if we wanna continue to mature in our relationship with God and have a genuine faith in him, if we want to eradicate the the sin of partiality from our lives and in our churches and have no part with it, then we have to be a people that, like my friend, that took the instruction that he was given and he went out in the water and he said, I'm gonna swim different. I'm gonna give this a shot. I'm actually gonna put this in practice. Because we believe that mercy is actually over partiality, isn't it? That's for us today. So question. The sin, it's something that we have to correct in order to mature in our faith. Like, we gotta be better, guys. And that means we need to live this mercy out in our lives, in our churches, in our homes, in our jobs, in our schools, on the streets, everywhere. We begin to be just beacons of hope and mercy everywhere we go, that because the mercy and the grace of God has been bestowed upon us, it's gonna go out, it's gonna be projected to the rest of the world, and the question, that I have for you that I want to leave you with this morning is how do you fall into partiality in your life? Would you take an honest assessment of that this morning? Do you struggle in that area more than you'd admit? And if Jesus and his crew walked into real life next Sunday, how would you view them? Because you know what? That crew that he's coming in with is teenagers, they're ragtag bunch, blue collar kids. When they walk into that room, you'd be like, "Uh, Jesus, you didn't have any better options? Like, seriously, That's it? Like, what in the world? This is like, this is the cream of the crop. It's the poor in spirit. The ones that would sell out their lives for me. My last question is this. Is as you leave this week, who do you need to show mercy to right now in your life instead of judgment? Who needs to see God's mercy through you this week? How will you work to uproot partiality and favoritism and unfair bias out of your life? How will you cut out of your life everything that devalues anybody else? How do you show others the mercy of God the way that He showed us mercy? How do you practice God's mercy with everyone you meet and everywhere you go? How is God's mercy lived out through you, church? How is it being projected to the world? Let lives of mercy towards others. He lived through us. Like, may we be conduits of hope, peace, mercy, kindness, compassion, grace, salvation to the rest of the world. Amen? Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, I want to thank you for your church because you paid crazy price for each individual in this room. And Jesus, that wasn't just so that we could call ourselves Christians and attend church and do all the right Jesus, that was so that we would begin to be followers practice what it is you tell us to do. And so Jesus, as we leave here this afternoon, I'm praying that we would be the hands and the feet of Jesus everywhere we go. I'm praying that Spokane would look differently as a result of a couple hundred people in this room that begin to walk in the kindness and the mercy and the grace of Jesus not just for themselves, but to bestow it upon others. Lord, I'm praying that the gospel would be preached more through the lives lived in this room and people that are willing to project your mercy to the world than even the words they have to speak to others. And I'm asking God for your anointing and your blessing upon each person who's this earth. Go with them in the name and the power of Jesus. Amen.